Hello, everybody. From the South Pacific, it is I, your podcast host, Mackenzie. And I'm joined today by an exceptional crew of people as we explore these islands. I am joined by the Canadian B. Arthur, the director extraordinaire, the John Adams of theater, Awesome Smith. <laughs> the sun is shining. I have mm. my daiquiri sitting on this beach. It's lovely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And joining us on our trip to Bally High, it is our friend of the podcast, <coughs> joining us now for her fifth appearance on, on the podcast. You're still our number one guest, God, Ms. Lynn Slotkin. Thank you very mm-hmm. much. My God, what a what an honor. What an honor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, good, good. Lovely. Yes, that's right. Yeah, so we have a whole team with us here today to continue our adventure into the Rogers and Hammerstein canon. We're oh, yes. skipping their flop of a musical, Allegro, and we are going on to What Autumn? What are we talking about today? Bali High, South Pacific, Mackenzie Horner. That's right. Cue the overture. Yes, we are doing South Pacific. Yes. And I chose this musical. Yes, you did. Yes. Autumn <laughs> Autumn chose Carousel. I chose Oklahoma and South Pacific as my two yeah. shows off the top. And I chose it because this is easily in my top three Rodgers and Hammerstein musicals. Right in there with Sound of Music in Oklahoma. Those are the three that kind of rotate in the top spot. And I love the music of this. Like, it is gorgeous. Like, right from the overture, when you hear the first three pentatonic notes, the ba-da-da, 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 ba-da-da. It's that wave, and it captures the, the setting beautifully. And you just get transported right away to this other location. And, I mean, this is easily the show that produces the most classic songs from the Roger Hammerstein canon. I mean, you have songs like Some Enchanted Evening, yeah, Hawkeye Optimist, Nothing Like a Dame, Gonna Wash That Man Right Out of My Hair, You Gotta Be Carefully Taught, This Nearly Was Mine, um, Springtime, um, young, I'm sorry, Younger Than Springtime. Like, and you go through the entire soundtrack and it's like just I wonder which springtime you were going to go to for a moment there. <laughs> I got a little worried. I thought, oh, like, oh no, don't go to that one. Wrong content. No, not that one. No, no, no. Yeah. All right, covered that springtime. We did cover that springtime. Uh, but you just look through the entire track list of this musical, and it's like that one's a hit, that one's a hit, that one's a hit. Like this musical is just full of iconic pieces of musical theater songs. 
I, I we we all know composer lyricists etc who write hit songs for their mm-hmm. show in the, for the with the intention of moving up of having that a hit a hit song outside mm-hmm. of the show. I mm-hmm. don't want to get that sense from these gentlemen mm-hmm. that they did that in those years. You know when they when they mm-hmm. first wrote these musicals, you don't mm-hmm. get that because they're they're professional enough to know that these songs mm-hmm. should fit in. And yes. and you look at the la- look at the language of them and mm-hmm. see would that person sing that song? You know, mm-hmm. some enchanted evening. Who who would come up with that kind of a lyric? Who would <laughs> sing that? A person whose first language was not English. Mm-hmm. A, per- it, a person who so would read languages. a person who would read Proust for mm-hmm. fun, mm-hmm. a man who knows the 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 bounty mm-hmm. of the language that he's singing in. Yes. Some enchanted evening, my God! I don't know anybody anywhere that would use the word enchanted. As well as was used in this song by Emil Dubeck. Agreed. I'm going to start using that word now. Me too. Do it, Autumn. That it. was enchanting. And that was. Yeah, I wish there was something I could actually say. That. Yeah. <laughs> well, that'll that'll stop people. The first night where you actually go and, ha- and have a social gathering after this pandemic, you can definitely say that was some enchanted evening. Mm-hmm. And that's where that will come hopefully in. that it will be enchanted. Well, uh, we live in hope. No. Anyway. Autumn, Autumn, the first time you, me, and Lynn will sit down and actually record a podcast episode together will be, be some enchanted yes. recording. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. The songs just, they train, like, the, you're right, Lynn, like, never intended for them to be, like, standards, kind of like what Irving Berlin and Cole Porter had with their stuff. Like, when anything goes originally was written, all those songs were kind of, I want to say pop standards, but, like, of the day standards that mm-hmm. were then brought into a musical and made into a show. Mm-hmm. Raj Hammerstein, when they did started with Oklahoma, they wrote a musical that then had songs break out yes. of, of the mold. And oh, that they was were how, so beautiful. How could they not? Well, right. Like, 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 Oh, what a beautiful morning. You'll never walk alone. Yeah. Um, which is, yeah. Right. Like you have all these songs that they've written for character that then have found lives of their own, which is, rare in the musical that they be able to just like there's a lot of great musical songs that come that have come in the last few decades but very few of them have ever transcended the show themselves like what rogers and hammerstein were able to accomplish mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. very interesting thing to pick up on there i also like this because this is where rogers and hammerstein are doing what they do best as a duo which is they write shows that are masterfully balanced between musical theater liveliness while having this darker undertow of their pieces so like in oklahoma you have isolationism versus globalism being played about in there you also have the rise of fascism being talked about in sound and music you have domestic abuse talked about in carousel and now in south pacific you have racism that's their topic they decided was going to be the undertow of this piece that's going to drive and create conflict in the plot. And when you have to balance that, it it, it can be really tricky. And it, this music is deceptive of how it handles it. Because you listen to the overture, none of the big 
difficult songs like You Gotta Be Carefully Taught are featured in the overture. They crop up as the story goes along. And as the story progresses, the racism plot overtakes the romance of the story. But for the first bit, you're hoodwinked into believing this is going to be some romantic island tale of, uh, of a nurse and a Frenchman. You have no idea what's going to happen to them. They're not issue-based musicals. They're not. And I think that's, I think that's what sets them apart. They, they, you know, today we, we don't let the artistry come first to tell Mm -hmm. the story. We go, what is the issue I need to say? Yep. How do I, how do I Mm -hmm. show the audience what I want them Mm -hmm. to hear? Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. and that's not interesting. Yep. I'm sorry. It's not interesting in any work. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Your work in, if you want it to be universal, mm-hmm. if you don't want it to be universal, make it whatever way mm-hmm. you want. Mm-hmm. But if you want to appeal to a universal audience, you have to find the empathy for everyone that could be present. Mm-hmm. And you have to find the story to start a conversation after every person mm-hmm. leaves the theater. Mm-hmm. You can't hit them over the head with things. And that is what is beautiful about Rodgers and Hammerstein and what makes it timeless in, in so many ways, right? It's the mm-hmm. reason why we keep going back. Mm-hmm. Like you'll, you have to be carefully taught going back over that and going, this is something that they wrote a long time ago mm-hmm. in a time when we weren't having these conversations. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, amazing. Amazing the way they were able mm-hmm. to to infuse their work, mm-hmm. but everyone made it was it was accessible to everyone. They didn't yes. alienate people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I I come from uh, with everything. I come to it from the point of view of the audience. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm the, you know I'm the reason I guess all of you get up in the morning to give me this wonderful gift of theater. I come to it from the point of view of the audience. So what your intention was, what you wanted to do, and my observing from my point of view are two entirely different things. They can be the same thing, but they they usually are two entirely different things. And what I was always taught carefully. What I was always carefully taught was that if you want to make a universal statement, you start by being very, very, very specific. This is a story that takes place on a little island just off of Valley High because we can't go there because only Mm -hmm. the officers and the natives can go there. And this is very specific. And we're waiting. We're waiting impatiently for the war to begin to for us. So that's there. That's the thing. And in that, you get all of the different stories and certainly talking about racism and stuff. And when you talk about various productions later, Mac, I can tell you about the Lincoln Center production, which was yes. astonishing in mm-hmm. quietly talking about how black sailors were treated differently than white ones and mm-hmm. how the white sailors in that production were directed to be disdainful uh, uh, just in body language and no, you know, just in body language towards the blacks and how the black 
actors, sailors, whatever, were always separate from the mm-hmm. rest of the group. And I thought, that is Bart Shear being his usual brilliant self. Hence why he won the Tony for Best Director that year. There you go. And mm-hmm. unfortunately, he should have, you know, he lost it every other year and he should have won as well. But never mind. Yeah, that's a different topic. But yeah, I mean, like, Bart and Harrison, that's what they do really well. Once again, yeah. it's finding that balance of doing something timely while infusing it with a timeless quality that allows it to transcend the 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 the, the, the timeliness of a certain part of the show. Like mm-hmm. Oklahoma was written at a timely moment of when you have the world war occurring, you have the whole concept of isolationism versus globalism, but they found a way to infuse it with the timeless quality. It's like Arthur Miller with the crucible. He was facing the McCarthy era of uh, of the, uh, the communist trials, and he found a way to take that timely topic and infuse it with the timeless element of the Salem witch trials. And that's what they did here. They took a timely topic of military in the South Pacific, and they brought it in to, and they brought in the timeless topic of racism and how that infused this timely bit of history. Like it's fascinating what they did. Like their writing is so good. In fact, so many people now brush them aside going, Ah, it's Roger and Hammerstein. They're hokey. They're they're old. It's like, no, there's so much more in here. That they're the foundation. But they're, they're a huge foundation. everything else is built upon. Mm-hmm. Okay, oh. one more note of why this is my favorite. Um, or like or like why I chose it. It's the ending of the musical. I think this is one of the best endings of a Rogers and Hammerstein musical. By far. A lot of their musicals end on really weird notes, I find. <laughs> whether it's um oklahoma where it ends with the murder of judd and they ride off singing happily ever after in a buggy or carousel where you have billy bigelow somehow walking into heaven even after everything he's done this musical ends on such a wonderful note it harkens back to showboats ending where you've had this incredible strife happen throughout the second act of the show and then it ends on this couple holding hands and you're left questioning what's next for them. It's one of the most interesting dramaturgical endings. Like you can play that ending between Emil and Nellie so many ways, whether it's happy or whether or not they're looking questioning at each other, where it's like, can we make this work when I know that you were willing to walk away only like a few weeks ago? Like there's that some, one. Yeah, like there's some questions. That's the one. Like you it's such a great ending that ha- that works so many ways. And it's not weird dramaturgically it just works that ending that's why i'm all for this ending and it's simple and i know in this current day and age that people will bring up the orient orientalism problem and an an exoticism problem with the show where like the way the way the treatment of the islanders yes that is an issue we're going to talk about that uh for sure as we get through this piece uh but i think there's a lot you can do with this for a modern audience that you can really explore so yes but it begins in a way that that breaks every rule of theater. You, the, the, Hal, Hal Prince would say, in the first five minutes of a musical, you've get, got to set the theme and the tone and everything else. So it's not rousing. It's not, it, it's not full of anticipation. It starts with two children speaking in French. Mm-hmm. moi. And mm-hmm. so you're thinking, what's that? So you're, mm-hmm. you know, the, you're, 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 you're mm-hmm. sitting back on a note. Maybe that's it. 
you're sitting mm-hmm. back and there you won't be, maybe you're confused if you don't know what French no don't know French mm-hmm. and are not aware of what these little kids are singing but because it's kids it's not perhaps not necessary to know what they're singing that mm-hmm. that aren't they cute and aren't they mm-hmm. sweet and aren't they lovely etc cetera, etc cetera. and then at the end it 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 sort of bookends the quiet ending of them holding hands under the table at the end of the play Mm-hmm. At the end of the musical. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, Leano, this musical, it is easily top three, if not number one, of the Roger and Hammerstein canon for me. But yeah, Lynn, when we pitched you on what we had coming up, why was South Pacific one of the ones where you, because you were very quick to say, I want to come back for this episode. So um, what is it about this one that made you want to come back? I, I love the, the story. I mm-hmm. love how you have to kill cable because Uh there's no way in hell he can go back to philadelphia main line with Uh with a a native woman no matter how Uh sweet and wonderful and fantastic and then you have emile de beck and nelly forbush staying in on the island here because Uh that's acceptable you can have a mixed race couple who are going to solve their problems of being so different you know she has doesn't know who proust is and Mm -hmm. he reads proust for fun so Mm -hmm. don't don't worry about how the relationship will 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 cope because it does people Mm -hmm. just make things work don't Mm -hmm. they so i love that i and because i had seen the Lincoln Center production, which I thought was so brilliant in showing racism, mm-hmm. in in showing racism in stagecraft, uh, realizing it in the in the works uh, and the words. Um, uh, you have to be carefully taught. An absolutely brilliant song and so mm-hmm. true. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's why I love it. I love it. Okay. Well, I mean, let me give you the plot for anybody who doesn't know this plot of South Pacific, because, you know, there could be a few people out there who just haven't gotten around to this part of the Roger and Hammerstein canon yet. It's a thing. So this musical takes place on an island in the South Pacific during World War II. And the musical centers around two main couples. You have Nellie and Emil and uh, Lieutenant Cable and I and Island Girl. Yeah. So... The, so following the beautiful overture that audiences got to hear, you're then briefly introduced to two half-Polynesian children, Jerome and Nagana. They sing the beautiful song, song Dite Moi, and then they're chased off stage by the butler. And then you get to meet the main couple, who is Nellie Forbush, the, the naive U.S. Navy nurse from Little Rock, Arkansas, home of the Clintons. And you have Emile Debec, a middle-aged French uh, plantation owner. And throughout the first scene, the two wonder if the other reciprocates the feelings of love that have been developing between them since their meeting on some enchanted evening at a dance party. Two weeks um, before. Two weeks, right? Great. It's a true Shakespearean love right there. Then Emil is the first one to break the ice, and he expresses his love to Nellie, recalling the night they met at the officer's dance, and he sings to her the beautiful love song, Some Enchanted Evening. Some Enchanted Evening. I see a stranger You may see a 
Then promises to think over their relationship. And just before she leaves to go back to the hospital, Emile confesses that to her that he killed a man in France. Hence why he has relocated to the island. And then once Nellie leaves, we are then reintroduced to the children. And we find out that, oh, they are Emile's children. And that's now a set up plot point for later. Because Emile is white and you have these children being half Polynesian. So you're already going, okay, where is this going to come back later? And it does. Then we cut over to the American Seabees, and they're led by the crafty Luther Billis. And as a group, they lament the fact that there's an absence of available women uh, because they can't date the nurses. They can't go off to Bally High, the island where all the French plantation girls are. They're just kind of stuck in a rut on a beach. Poor uh, them. Poor them. Poor them. And so as they lament, Luther hatches a plan. Uh, that he's going to befriend an officer and get him to take him over to Bally High, which, as we said, is off limits. And he's and he's going to do it under the guise of going to, uh, going to see the boar's tooth ceremony. No, really, he wants to go see the women because they're going to be dancing topless in in grass skirts. So as a little, in in a little, it's a little bit like the beginning of Miss Saigon. Yes, it is. There is definitely some Miss Saigon elements in here. Mm-hmm. We're gonna we're gonna get into that because Roger Hammerstein were very cognizant of the Madame Butterfly connection with this. Uh huh. So stay tuned. So Luther, as he plans, uh, in arrives a local woman named Bloody Mary, who is a sassy middle-aged Tonkinese vendor of grass skirts and other island artifacts, including shrunken heads and boar's tooth bracelets. And basically, through we see that she uses sarcasm and flirtation to sell these. <laughs> products to desperate men on the island so she's very crafty that way uh very entrepreneurial of her her mother courage moment yes well she literally has a cart that she's pulling and like doing her thing there <laughs> come on lynn you gotta agree they're both very yep that's why i'm crafty you're absolutely crafty right. resourceful you don't have to get what they need then arrives on the beach is, is u.s marine lieutenant gable joseph gable and he has arrived and has been sent from the mainland of Guadalcanal with a mission, a dangerous spy mission, actually. That what else, uh, what else is there? What other kind is there? Who knows? <laughs> During World War II. Yeah. So basically, he's going to do reconnaissance against Japan. And um, he, that's why he shows up on the island. Luther makes Cable his mark of getting him to Valley High. And Bloody Mary also makes him her mark, unbeknownst to either Cable or Luther that she's also going to use Cable to help her daughter, Liat, uh, get a kind of kind of get a better life through marriage. That's her tactic. So she, along with uh, Luther, try and seduce Cable to go over to Bally High. Uh, and they're, they're kind of wooing him. But then all of a sudden on arrives Captain George Brackett and Commander William Harbson. And that's kind of. Uh, and that's kind of Cable's upper ma- upper level management people that he's going to be working with. They kind of escort him off and explain that they're going to use this island 
uh, to spy on the Japanese. And to do that, they need to get local man, Emil, to be like kind of their inside guy to kind of know the island. Uh, however, they've heard reports about Emil's background, about Emil's murder, as well as his family. So they're kind of got to just some reconnaissance of our own on this guy to make sure he's going to be on our side. So they recruit um, Nelly to do that for them. And basically, Nelly kind of go, is a little bit uneasy about it and realizing that she doesn't really know a lot about Emil. She tells all the nurses she intends to end the relationship with him and wash that man right out of her hair. Literally. <laughs> and uh, Emil arrives following this moment and invites her to a party to introduce her to his friends. She accepts. Emil declares his love for Nelly and asks her to marry him. She then starts to bring up things, trying to figure him out in his background. Uh, so she talks about politics and he mentions all but universal freedom, describing fleeing France, standing up, standing up against a bully that he killed. And basically Nelly agrees to marry him going, all right, I'm in. At that point, the, the information is brought back to the commanders who then approach Emil saying, we don't have to come on this mission. He refuses saying he'd rather just stay on the island and have his life with Nelly, which then sets Lieutenant Cable back. And so he's put on leave. And so while he's on leave, he gets he goes over to Bally High with, with uh, Luther. And while Luther's attending the ceremony, basically Bloody Mary plays matchmaker and sets with with her daughter, Liat. And so they then sleep together and, and Cable very quickly falls for Liat. And basically... As he's leaving, uh, Bloody Mary tells him that you're going to be my son-in-law. Uh, and Luther and him leave the island drunk. At the same time, this party, this island stuff's going on. You have the parallel story of Nelly and Emil hosting the party back at Emil's place. And at the end of the party, Emil introduces her to the children. And he says that he was married to a Polynesian woman, hence why his children are mixed. Nelly, who is unable to overcome her deep-seated racial prejudice, that she's so very adamantly prior to the scene was all about no racism. I'm not racist. People don't get modern world. My family doesn't get it from Little Rock, Arkansas. I'm not like them. Falls prey to her prejudiced beliefs, racist beliefs, and tearfully breaks off with Emil. And Emil's left standing at the end of the first stack, sadly wondering what might have been. So, Act two then opens on Thanksgiving Day. You have the GIs and the nurses doing a holiday review uh, party. And then backstage, you have Lieutenant Cable, who's now broken out of the hospital because he's contracted malaria due to an outbreak that happened on Bally High. And so he's basically trying to get back to the island to go see Liot. But Liot and Bloody Mary arrive backstage. And Bloody Mary kind of rejoices that her plan of seducing Lieutenant Cable is working. However, Lieutenant Cable knowing that his family would never accept Liat, says, I can't marry you. There's no way I can, I can be with you. So he breaks off of her. She's upset. Lieutenant Cable's upset. You then cut back to the show and you have Nellie and Luther doing a drag number with Luther in coconut bra and grass skirt and Nellie in a Navy uniform. They're doing a dance and then they end the show. And then you have a confrontation between Emil and Nellie because Emil's found out that Nellie's put him for a transfer off the island. They kind of fight, and Emil just can't understand why she can't get over her prejudice. And that's when Cable has his great song, You Have to Be Carefully Taught. And that's where he taught, and that's where he explains 
through his own self-loathing, he goes, it's not something you're born with. It's something that's ingrained. That's part of your upbringing. Basically what he says, paraphrasing the line from the script. Explains that to Emil, and Emil, very upset, once again laments what he's lost with 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 Nelly, and then because he feels so dejected, uh, he agrees to go with Cable on this dangerous reconnaissance mission. So they set off in a plane. And this all happens off stage, by the way. Luther also stows away on the plane, on, on, away on the plane for some reason, and then he falls out of the plane or pur- purposely jumps out of the plane. It's left up to debate which one happens. And then he is then uh, left floating in the ocean in a dinghy. (laughs) And because of that, he creates a big enough distraction to allow Emil and Cable to get past the Japanese and onto the island where they can start doing the reconnaissance. Yeah. I'm saying this story, I'm doing a very quick plot version here. As things happen, they're on the island, they're doing reconnaissance. Uh, the Japanese ultimately find Emil and Cable, and Cable is wounded uh, and, ki- and, and dies off screen, off stage. Uh, and Emil is left kind of stranded. At that point, basically, the army kind of mobilizes because they now have the information they need to kind of get them more moving. So they're going to go try and get Emil as well as they're now going to action uh, Nelly upon finding out about Cable's death and the fact that Emil is now missing in action, realizes how foolish she was to regret or reject Emil. And Bloody Mary and Liat find Nelly asking where, where Cable is. Mary explains that Liat refuses to marry anyone but him. Nelly has to break the news that Cable has perished, and basically, there basically Liot has to move on. Like it, it's 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 obviously it's that, yeah. yeah. She has to move forward. So basically, the, the troops ship out because Operation Alligator is now a go, and Nelly is then left on the island to spend time with the children of Emile's, and she very quickly comes to love them. The children are teaching her to sing in French, moi. and then suddenly, as if from the grave. From off stage, Emil suddenly appears, also singing the song, and he joins them. Beautiful, sweeping love moment. He embraces his children, and he goes and sits with uh, the children at the table and Nelly. And as the children eat, he holds Nelly's hand under the table, and that's where the show ends. It's on that note, and that is the plot rundown of this, of South Pacific. What's <laughs> that? It's it's an epic story. It's an epic story in all in, in all the sense. There I, we have, go. I have more thoughts about her now. Who? After hearing it out loud. Nelly? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's interesting. <laughs> it's, it's, it's interesting because her gender plays a major part in it, right? Yes. And the fact that, you know, uh, I think it's bigger than just racism. Mm-hmm. I think just her saying, I can't handle this because, uh, you Prejudice. know. Um, uh, I don't think maybe she's not. I think she is afraid. I think she's afraid of the uh, reaction she would get back home. Absolutely. I don't think it's about her. I think it's about the perception of other people about her. Mm -hmm. One, but also um, putting yourself in a situation where you become a step parent. Mm. uh, That is big. And to properly, you know, mother um, children that don't look like you. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I think at that time, 
was probably a lot to handle. Yeah. Where Cable, you know, and, and Liot, he can't take her back mm -hmm. because of judgment. Um, Nellie to go back into America would face extreme isolation. Her purpose of being a nurse would be devalued. Mm -hmm. So, you know, she's weighing a lot in her balance. And yeah. I think, you know, we can't just basically ever call her just a racist when, mm -hmm. when we're looking at this work. And I'm sure a lot of people would. They'd be like, oh, you're a terrible human being. But I, it, it's more complicated than that. And I think I think it's fear. I think it's I think it's the fear of the perception of others. Mm -hmm. I actually don't think she's a racist. Mm -hmm. Well, she's, I, well, she's I facing think, big think, societal stakes. Like that's it's, what she's it's like a parent. It's mm -hmm. like a parent um, with their with their children coming out of the closet, mm -hmm. and there's this fear, like the prom, yeah, like Alyssa Green's mom, right? Mm -hmm. That perception of what others will say and how it will change you and society and how you will cope. Sometimes that unknown is too much for people. Mm -hmm. So um, I think it. I think it's. I think it's really complicated, and I think that's really great for Rodgers and Hammerstein to contemplate. Mm -hmm. You know, and they do that subtly. It's not what what happens today, where it's a blatant like sledgehammer point they try to drive home. It's a scalpel. It's no, a, but she's a fine contemplating. Cut. Yeah. She's already contemplating. Is this too fast? Um, I don't know him. Mm -hmm. He's killed a person. Uh, what is he violent? Like, mm -hmm. what is there's there's a lot of question marks mm -hmm. for her, mm -hmm. and this is just an easy out. Yep, it's an easy out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Anyway, mm -hmm. she's not going back to the United States. Both of them are escaping their 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 lives from where they were. So Emil is escaping France because he he killed somebody. She. Mm -hmm has said that she, you know, I, I didn't actually escape from somewhere. I escaped to somewhere. Oh, and she, mm -hmm. and depending on what performance or what production you're looking at, she could look mm -hmm. out and indicate the island. Mm -hmm. uh, in one, in the Reba McIntyre production, she points to Emile de Beck and said, I was coming towards you, blah, mm -hmm. blah, blah. It depends on who's directing it, etc. But both of these people have found sanctuary on this mm -hmm. island. And that's where they're going to stay, have a a meeting of the minds. Do you love each other? Do you want to hold her hand under the table? And therefore, you both will move in the same direction if you're lucky. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Once again, finding new elements of this piece that just show how brilliant Rogers and Hammerstein were. And also John Logan, which we're going to get into now because... Let's yeah. talk about the uh, creative team. I mean, we've talked about Rogers and Hammerstein. Yes, and nauseam at this point. I want to talk about the other people. So mm -hmm. South Pacific is actually based on a piece of fiction by James mm -hmm. Albert Mishner. Mm -hmm. And he was an, uh, an American author, wrote over 40 books, uh, most of which were lengthy fictional family sagas covering the lives of many generations, uh, in particular geographic locales, and incorporating uh, detailed histories. Mm -hmm. um, 
He his books include Tales of the South Pacific, in which South Pacific is based on, uh, for which he won the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction in 1948. He also wrote Hawaii, The Drifters, Centennial, The Source, The Fires of Spring, Chesapeake, Car- uh, Caribbean Caravans, Alaska, Texas Space, and <laughs> Poland. That's how thick his books are. They're well, yeah, they're they're big. His memoir is titled "The World Is My Home," which is interesting. Listening to the titles of his books, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and uh, "Sports in America," that's fun. Mm-hmm. Um, he also penned "Return to Paradise," which combines fictional short stories with Mishner's factual descriptions of the Pacific areas where they take place. So Tales of the South Pacific was the uh, source material for Mm -hmm. this musical. Love it. Um, So Rodgers and Hammerstein were joined by Joshua Logan, Mm -hmm. uh, who was the co-book writer and the director of the original production. Mm -hmm. Logan was born in Texas, and at a very early age, he knew great loss. When he was three, his father committed suicide. Wow. Um, they moved after that. His mother and his sister moved to Louisiana, which Logan used four years later for setting up his play Wisteria Trees. So they moved in with his grandparents in Mansfield, Louisiana. Well, that was interesting. Um, he went to Princeton. And he was involved with the Intercollegiate Summer Stock Company, known as the University Players. What a great name. Um, and he was there with one James Stewart and also non-students like Henry Fonda and Margaret Sullivan. During his senior year, he served as president of the Princeton Triangle Club. Before his graduation, he won a scholarship to travel to Moscow to observe the rehearsals of Konstantin Stanislavski. As you do. Mm-hmm. As, as one I, does. Why as not? Everyone does, do we not? Yeah. Logan began his Broadway career as an actor in Carrie Nation in 1932. He was also in I Was Waiting for You in 1933. He then spent time in London, where he staged two productions and directed a touring revival of Camille. And he also worked as a stage manager. I'm in love with this man because he's he does everything and mm-hmm. he knows everything. Mm-hmm. Every director, every actor, we should all do all the things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because then you appreciate what other people do. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. He staged It's You I Want in 1935 to see ourselves in 1935. And was the stage manager for most of the game. I would like to. I would like to have his career. I think it's really cool. Uh, he also staged Hell Freezes Over in 1935-36, and refer, returned to acting with A Room in Red and White in 1936. Uh, he went to Hollywood and did some dialogue directing on The Garden of Allah, and History Is Made at Night and Suez. Logan was given the chance to co-direct the feature film I Met My Love Again in 1938 for Walter Wanger. Then he returned to Broadway where he had success with director as a director with Paul Osborne's On Borrowed Time, uh, which ran for 321 performances, which is quite long. And he followed it with a musical I Married an Angel 
He directed Knickerbocker Holiday, Stars in Your Eyes, Morning at Seven, Two for the Show, Higher and Higher. And then he did a revival of Charlie's Aunt, which went for 233 performances, a big hit. And then he did the Hart and Rogers musical by Jupiter with Ray Bulger. World War II, Logan was drafted by the U.S. Army in 1942. He acted as a, a public relations intelligence officer. Uh, and he was selected to become the assistant director of Irving Berlin's This is the Army. And when in Europe, organized jeep shows of entertainers serving as soldiers doing their shows near the front lines. Hmm. Uh, when the war concluded, he was discharged with the rank of captain and returned to Broadway. He married his second wife, Netta Harrigan, in 1945. Logan's previous marriage to actress Barbara O'Neill, a colleague at University Players, had ended in divorce. He resumed his directing career with Annie Get Your Gun in 46 to 49. Back gem. He followed it with Anita's Anita Lou's Happy Birthday and Norman Krasna's John Loves Mary. Mm -hmm. His golden run continued with Mr. Roberts, which he co-wrote as well as directed. Then came South Pacific, which ran for an astonishing 1,925 performances. Mm -hmm. uh, it won him the Pulitzer Prize uh, with Rogers and Hammerstein for co-writing South Pacific. It also earned him a Tony Award for Best Director. Indeed. Um, despite, fun fact, his contributions to the musical, the New York Times originally omitted his name as co-author. Other fun fact. I know. Uh, is yeah. that he got no money for, for, for his writing contributions. He was written out of that part of the contract. He only got paid for directing. He also, as I mentioned, did the Wisteria Tree, and he also did an adaptation of The Cherry Orchard. It was a minor success. Mm -hmm. Logan co-wrote, co-produced, and directed the 1952 musical Wish You Were Here. Mm. After this show was not initially successful, Logan wrote uh, 54 new pages of material, and by the ninth performance, the show looked new. In its fourth week of release, the show sold out and continued to offer solo performances for the next two years. He had other successes with Picnic by William Ng and Krasna's Kind Sir. He also did Fanny, which Logan co-wrote and co-produced and directed, which ran 888 performances. Mm -hmm. I mentioned that he was in Hollywood. His first uh, film that he directed on his own was Picnic, the film adaptation. He also did Bus Stop with Marilyn Monroe. He did uh, directed on Broadway Middle of the Night by Patty Chayefsky. Mm, and then genius writer. Uh, he visited Japan to direct Marlon Brando in Sayonara, which earned him a second Oscar nomination for Best Director. Then he did South Pacific. Logan went back to Broadway and directed Blue Denim. And the, he's just all over the map. I love it. And the hugely popular The World of Susie Wong. He produced Epitaph for George Dillian, Dylan as well. On here. And then he goes back and forth between Broadway and Hollywood. Broadway and Hollywood. Broadway and Hollywood. Logan was briefly married to Barbara O'Neill, as I mentioned. After a couple of divorce, he married to Netta Harrington. In 2019, this is my last fact about him, Jane Fonda, the beautiful Jane Fonda, who, mm -hmm. like, why does she get more radiant? <laughs> she just, come on. 
Please Let That Be Me, who starred in Logan's 1960 film, Tall Story, Mm -hmm. claimed both she and Logan were in love with Anthony Perkins. And that caused a lot of tension in an already difficult shoot. Well, there we go. So he was a, a complicated mess of a creative he had a storied career and he's he had a storied life Mm -hmm. and i think that made him a great artist agreed there we go that is me all right let's go so let's sit back with our coconut drinks as we go into the land of production history with this Um, musical (laughs) (laughs) all right so uh, last we left off in the Rogers and Hammerstein timeline last season, they had just had their big success of Carousel. So following Carousel, they then did Allegro in 1947, and it is considered a flop by even Rogers and Hammerstein, even though it did turn a small profit. It ran less than a year, but it was like, yeah, this wasn't as good as our last two. Uh, so they really decided to sit down and focus on ne- achieving their next hit. That was their goal. So they, so I would say they definitely did that. Um, it was director Joshua Logan, who was a friend of both Rogers and Hammerstein, and also and also their producer friend Leland uh, Hayward, who suggested the 1947 book Tales of the South Pacific by James A. Michener uh, to Rogers as a possible source material, just like they had suggested Bring the Lilac or um, I forget with Carousel or, or um, Lilium for with Carousel. Uh, so basically they're like, yeah, go back to a book. There's, there's a good thing there for you. seems to work. Uh, but Rogers was like, eh, I don't know about that and kind of left it be. It wasn't until Logan then suggested to Hammerstein, who then read the book, that the project finally got away because it was Hammerstein who then went and spoke to Rogers and the two agreed to do the project as long as they had majority share of control, which their producing partner, Hayward, <laughs> grudgingly agreed to. Uh, Hayward then went about getting the rights and he attempted to buy the rights from Michener outright offering $500 to Michener for the book rights. And Michener rightfully declined this. And instead, he negotiated a deal where Michener will receive 1% of the gross receipts from the production of South Pacific. So keep keep an eye on that fact because that's going to come back later. Um, as Rogers and Hammerstein began their work on the adaptation, Michener uh, worked with uh, um, with the lyrics mostly with Hammerstein, but it was Rogers who then also brought up his statement saying, "I don't want to write a score that is heavily featured ukuleles and guitars," because he disliked that concept. And Michener assured him, "You're not doing the typical Hawaiian ukulele sounding score. We can go epic and classic with this." So off they went to now start the project. So going through the book, because the book is based is feature is not one big story. The book is a bunch of short stories put together. So the two of them then went off to do the work on this. And it was while they were out in California at the Hotel Bel Air that they decided that their central story should be based on the story of Fodala, which is a story about interracial romance between Lieutenant Cable and Island Girl Leah. But after consideration, they were like, is this just a retelling of Madame Butterfly? And they're like, yeah, it's kind of as a retelling of Madame Butterfly. It's like, well, we got to find something else to kind of balance this out a bit. So they said, oh, well, we can use our second favorite story of the book, which was Our Heroine, 
which centered around a Navy nurse and, and a Frenchman on the island. So what they liked about the fact that they had found these two stories is that they both were serious love stories, which was new for Roger and Hammerstone. Usually their trope was one serious love story and one comedic foil love story, which they had done with Ado Annie and Will Parker or Carrie and Enoch. There would be, they had never done a story where it was two serious love stories playing out on stage. That was new for them. So they liked that challenge. So that's what they decided on. That was going to be their game plan. And actually, the same day they decided on the game plan of what the stories were going to be, it was the same, same day that Rogers got a call from producer friend Edwin Lester, who was producing a touring show of Amy Get Your Gun. And he also was working on a project called Mr. Ambassador, where he had signed on Metro Opera Basso, Ezio Pinza, this opera singer, to a 12-week, $25,000 deal, but then his musical fell apart. But Lester was still on the hook for this contract. So he had called up Roger saying, do you have anything for uh, Pinza to do? And basically, Rogers hung up the phone and went, we found our meal. I know exactly what we're going to do with this. So they were like, okay, we got our meal. We know what we're going to do. Then they're like, well, now we need our Nelly. So they were like, oh, well, let's ask Mary Martin to be Nelly because she's right now, they had just seen her in the touring production of Annie Get Your Gun, which Lester was producing. So Martin was approached about originating the role of Nellie Forbush. She was hesitant to take the role, though, because having been just seen Urban Berlin songs, her vocal range had lowered itself. And she didn't have the same big range that she had started with. So she was like, I don't want to compete with Pinza for, for singing. Like, I don't want to do a traditional love battle where I'm going to be, like, dwarfed by this opera singer. So they were like, okay, no problem. Give us a minute. We'll figure out a solution. And they did. They figured out the solution was going to be they wrote the opening duet, which is called Twin Soliloquies, which is where Neil and Nellie sing parallel melodies that are exploring their feelings versus singing one together. Wonder why I feel jittery and jumpy. I am like a schoolgirl waiting for a dance. Then I ask her now, I am like a schoolboy. What will be her answer to I? That's which right. Avoided, exactly. Which avoided Mary Martin's problem of having to compete with, hopefully yeah. with Pinza. So that's what they did. So I said, okay, let me consider as I drive back from California to Connecticut after my tour finishes. So her tour finished, she drove back. And when Mary Martin and her manager slash husband, Richard Halliday, got back to Connecticut, Rogers and Richard had finished composing their two songs, two more songs, which were Cockeyed Optimus. bright canary yellow I forget every cloud I've ever seen so they call me a cockeyed optimist immature and incurably green in some enchanted evening so Rogers invited Mary and her husband Richard over they perform these songs for her they have Logan read some of the early dialogue to her. And they said, you got 72 hours to kind of let us know if you're going to move forward with us or not. And Mary Martin called at three o'clock the next morning, woke Rogers up and said, do we have to wait 72 hours for me to say yes? 
So she was on board. So now with the stars in place, the rest of the plot and stuff kind of developed from there. So the producing team very quickly shortened the title from Tales of the South Pacific to South Pacific, as the producers were tired of people making risque puns on the word tales. They changed, they shortened it to South Pacific. Hammerstein then was trying to figure out how do we solve the problem of normally our go-to formula is serious relationship, comedy relationship, and the comedy relationship bounces out the comedy of the story. Here, they don't have that. So instead, they went back into the book again and they found the character of Luther Billis from the story Dry Rot. And that's where they kind of were like, okay, we got it. This, he's going to be our comedic foil to everything that's going on on stage. And it was Hammerstein who actually went back to uh, Michener say, and said, can you flesh Luther Billis out a little bit more for me so I understand his background, what he'd be doing on the island. Kind of give me some more stuff about him so I can kind of build the character a bit more. So that's what they did. And then early drafts of the musical, Hammerstein wrote two more significant characters which ultimately kind of got diminished into minor background roles. Billy Harbison and Dana Colbert. So Harbison was one of the major characters for, for, from the actual book, The Tale of the South Pacific. And he was a model officer at the start who gradually denigrates, or sorry, disintegrates to the point where he, when battles imminent, requests uh, his influential father-in-law to procure him a transfer off the island and back to mainland uh, of the U.S., uh, Hammerstein conceived of this character to be a rival uh, to Emil for Nellie's affections and even gave him a song called Bright Young Executive of Today. However, that element of the story was ultimately dropped and Harbison became less essential and was relegated to a small role as, as an executive officer to, 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 to the commander of the island, Captain uh, Brackett. Brackett. And then you have character of uh, Dina uh, the nurse, who is going to be a friend of Nellie's, kind of along the lines of Ada Wayne, basically going to be a, a, a foil for Nellie to play off of with someone. And so they had this character, who was also a major character in Michener's book as well. Uh, and she was going to also be a love interest for Billis. Even though romance between Navy, the Navy and nurses was a bit of a, was, was not allowed. But that uh, ultimately kind of got, once again, decreased as it was proven that the, the friendship was incidental to the plot. By the end, uh, Dana's character retains a solo line in the song, I'm going to wash that man right out of my hair. And that's what she got reduced down to. Speaking of the song, I'm going to wash that man right out of my hair, it was from Mary Martin that the idea came about. Because she was in the shower, uh, and she realized that she had never seen a woman wash her hair on stage. Upon the light bulb going off on her head, supposedly, as she tells it, she quickly hopped out of the shower, uh, but buck naked, ran into the living room where her, where her husband was and said, I have an idea for a song. And he told her quickly saying, don't recommend this to them, the team, as in Logan, Rogers and Hammerstein, because they're going to take this idea and you're going to have to wash your hair on stage eight times a week. And it's, it's going to be, it's quick. It's going to go from being a novelty act for you to being like a pain in your neck. But, Mary Martin ignored him and went off and told the team anyway. And they all loved the idea. They thought it was ingenious. They thought, what a great bit of show gimmick, like, a show gimmick to do. So they did it. And sure enough, the song was written. And originally it was conceived as a duet between Dana and Nellie. 
with Dana beginning the song and developing its theme, but then having Nelly kind of pick it up and carry it forward. But Hammerstein realized that the decision to wash Emil out of her hair had to become from Nelly's original thought. It couldn't be somebody else that would choose and forming her idea. Uh, only then did the scene have a dramatic potential for Nelly's emotional transition as she realizes her love for Emil, building up to the song, I'm in love with a wonderful guy. It's You need, need to have her as the solo driving force of the scene. So that's why Dana got her got cut. Uh, Mary Martin notably could never get all the soap out of her hair on stage when she washed it. So she had to wash it again in the dressing room after every performance. And then again, when she got home before the, show, the, ne the next day's show. And Mary calculated over her years of playing the role of Nellie Forbush, she actually washed her hair 20 times a week for three and a half years when she played the role on Broadway and in, and in London's West End. So in total, it was very clean. Mm -hmm. So like you do the math there, three and a half years times 20, like it's a lot of hair wash she had to do from one idea that came to her. Uh, the ultimate irony is it didn't even work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she still had to go back and do it again. So, and again and again. Yeah, I mean, and it didn't even work in the plot. She can't wash them out. Yeah, so there you go. Uh, we'll, don't worry, we'll talk more about that song. The other number that Mary Martin had a strong influence on was Honey Bun. Her hair is blonde and curly. Her curls are hurly burly. Her lips are pips. I call her hips. Twirly and whirly. She's my baby. I'm her pap. I'm her booby. She's my trap. I am caught and I don't want to run Cause I'm having so much fun with honey bun. And that was because a friend of hers from summer camp in Texas mailed her a picture of Mary in a baggy man's striped shorts, a sailor's hat, and necktie. Hammerstein and Logan saw the image and Hammerstein actually kept the photo and put it up on his shaving mirror as a reminder of him saying, you will always be this kid. Even though you may wear the ball gowns and go out to all the fancy places, you'll still always be this kid in, this kid in drag in the summer camp. So ultimately, they wrote the song because they also, at the time, had cast Myron McCormick as Luther, and he had a special talent of undulating his stomach, which is where you make waves with your stomach muscle, kind of like a belly dancers do. So he was able to do that. So they conceived of a number where Mary Martin could wear the same outfit from the photo and have Myron as Luther wear a coconut bra and grass skirt and have a fully rigged ship tattooed on his stomach that he could then move as if it was on the open ocean. And that was the concept of the number. And Lynn's just shaking her head going, of all the ways to create a, uh, a number, that's how you do it. But there you go. So the writing process kind of stalled for Hammerstein. After he wrote the first scene and he kind of written some outlines and some lyrics of other stuff, but he kind of hit a brick wall early on in the process. And it was because Hammerstein didn't have the knowledge of the military. And that's where Logan kind of came in as a veteran of the armed forces to help fill out the story and help Hammerstein in this area. And it was writing the dialogue for this that Logan asked to be credited for his work as a book writer for this musical. Roger the Hammerstein decided that he would receive a co-writing credit on the book, but he would receive no author's royalties. Logan stated that a contract uh, putting these charges uh, into place was forced on him. It was sent over to his lawyer and it was instructed that unless he signed it in, within two hours, 
Logan need not show up for rehearsals as the director of the musical. I'm sorry. That has made me lose a little bit of respect for them. Mm -hmm. I would be like, this is my intellectual property. Thank you. Goodbye. Do without. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That is, that's crap. That Mm -hmm. is crap. Mm -hmm. Rogers and Hammerstein. Shame on you. Yeah. So. Ultimately, Logan did sign the document, but apparently his lawyer never told him about the ultimatum about not directing. It was just sign the paper and he did. When it came to writing the song, Happy Talk. Happy Talk keeps talking, Happy Talk. Talk about things you'd like to do. You've got to have a dream. If you don't have a dream, how you gonna have a dream come true? It was said it was composed in 20 minutes when Hammerstein, who had sent the lyrics over by messenger, called to check whether Rogers had received them. His partner informed him that he had both the lyrics and the music done. And legend has it that Bally High was written in 10 minutes over coffee at Logan's apartment. Well, I would just like to say, thank goodness for Joshua Logan. Mm-hmm. Because otherwise, they wouldn't have won a Pulitzer. Yep. And thank God for Joshua Logan, because he directed it beautifully and got the awards. Yep. I, I'm, I, I don't even want to talk about this anymore. I'm so irritated. <laughs> it's abuse. And you know what? We do this all the time in our industry. We, we throw people under the bus, and it disgusts me. And we call ourselves artists as if we're the only ones who matter. No, suck it. It's not about you. Be better. Be better. We we give too much of ourselves. We need to start saying no to people who take advantage of us. Mm-hmm. Period. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That is all. Richard Rogers had a daughter named Mary Rogers, who was a composer, mm-hmm. who then had a son named Adam Gettle. So no matter how evil you think these people might have been with, uh, elsewhere, their goodness somehow continued on. I look at, I think, I just think it's interesting that we put them in this shining beacon of light, Rogers and Hammerstein. But then it just goes to prove that we are made of different fabrics. That's true. And we are not just what the outside world perceives us to be. That's mm-hmm. true. But they they created it's... some wonderful, wonderful, wonderful art. And possibly, perhaps, maybe, they were shits. Do we hate Picasso because he was terrible to the women in his life? No, we revere him. But this is what I'm saying. Wouldn't it be interesting if everyone left with the full perspective so they could get that full, like, it's not going to change my love for Rodgers and Hammerstein, but it's going to make me reflect on how I am in a rehearsal room and how I treat the people that uh, are around me and learn to say no to people who are not doing good for me. Then you have learned something from that unfortunate situation. Yes. And that's how I feel feel bad. Mm -hmm. I feel bad that, you know, we, we idolize people and then we go, Oh, they're human. Yes, exactly. But we're idolizing because of the art that they produced. We, we don't know the backstory of how they produced it. 
So, you know, Josh, Josh, well, Josh Logan went on to do fantastic things. We don't know how he, he, how he treated people. He was married a few times. How did he treat those women? Did he have a story he didn't want to tell them? That's right. Fair. No, no, you're right. But it's, it's just, it, you know, I always say to my students, we are more than just what is seen in the play. The, the the character is fuller than that. So you need to find that fullness. That's true. Mm-hmm. So it's it's nice to hear that they were dicks to Josh Loki. <laughs> like, they were human. In oh, the words of the Godfather, human. it's not personal, it's business. For it's them. not personal, it's business. Or they were human and they mm-hmm. were still shits. Yeah. But they were yeah. they were human. Yeah. They were exactly. they did produce great things. Mm-hmm. That is not that is not up for debate. Yeah. I could not knock their artistry i knock their selfishness behind their artistry sure. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. there you go so yes back to bally high so yeah they wrote it in uh 10 minutes at logan's apartment and basically what happened was it was a three note motif that kind of set that whole song in place once that was done uh it just kind of all snowballed from there and Himmerstein's lyrics actually were inspired by the stage backdrop in which designer Joe Melsiner had painted. And actually the one thing about the island was the two volcanoes and the mist and the fog on the volcano. And that actually became lyrics because of Hammerstein seeing the painting. If you try, you'll find me where the sky meets the sea. am I? So there you go. Uh, The song I'm in love with the wonderful guy was written. And when it was done, Rogers called Mary Martin over to his apartment saying, come on over. We want you to sing it. Uh, Mary Martin sang it. And when she got to the final 26 words, which when she sang it as intended with a single breath, she fell off the piano bench. And as Rogers looked down at her on the floor, he went, that's exactly what I want. Never do it differently. We must feel you couldn't squeeze another sound. And so that is why that is written that way. If you'll excuse an expression I use, I'm in love. 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 So early drafts, Hamilton and Logan uh, made the issue of racial prejudice centered, central to the story. Hammerstein repeatedly re- rewrote the Act 2 backstage scene where Emil, Nellie, and Campbell confront the question of America's racism. Uh, it, was con- it was a continual thing. They were reworked, reworked, reworked. In one draft, Emil advised that the Americans are, not, uh, are no better than the Axis powers and their prejudice suggests, suggests that they go home to sing, to sing songs about how we all are created equal and free. You know, basically, it was felt that American audiences would have found this type of uh, sentiment offensive. So instead, it was rewritten 
And in the stage show now, Emile's uh, expressions of this topic are limited to two lines, arguing that prejudice is not inborn. So there you go. Okay, so with the writing being completed, the producers set off with Logan to start casting the the show. As you mentioned, uh, Myron McCormick was cast as Luther very quickly. Logan has said in his memoir that really nobody else was considered for the role once they saw uh, McCormick. For as they were like, that's our Luther. And then you have the toughest roles to cast were Cable and Bloody Mary. So they tried getting Harold Keel for the role of Cable. He had played Curly in the West End of Oklahoma, only to find out he had signed a contract with MGM under the name of Howard Keel. So he was out. Then you have William uh, Tabert, who they cast as Cable. And Logan instructed him to lose 20 pounds for starting rehearsal. There you go. Autumn's giving me another like glaring eye roll. She's just shaking her head at this process so entirely. I think she's becoming disenchanted, let's say, with this musical. <laughs> and then American, African-American singer Juanita Hall, who was part of the original company of Showboat, was cast as Bloody Mary. Logan recalls that at her audition, she took a squat pose and proclaimed, I am Bloody Mary and don't you dare consider anyone else. I'm going to try that. Go for it. I'm going to try that in my next interview. Do it. I am the person you want. Don't dare consider anyone else because you will be getting something less than. Yes. I'm going to do that. Thank you, Matt. Welcome. Thank you, Juanita. Yes, Juanita, the great Juanita Hall. Uh, And then you have Babita St. John, who under the name of Betty Strangler replaced Bambi Lynn as Louise in Carousel, and she took on the role of Liot. So there you go. So that was kind of the cast they assembled. Rehearsals began at Broadway's Valesco Theater on February 2nd, 1949. And there was no formal chorus. Each each nurse and military person had, was given a name. And in the case of the men, they're actually given $50 to go uh, shopping at for their characters' clothing pieces at the military surplus shops, which lined the West 42nd Street. So there you go. Martin and Pinza very quickly formed a strong friendship that was going to help them get through the show. Logan, as the director, used the technique of lap changes, which was pioneered by Rogers and Hammerstein in Allegro, which is where you basically have the people hiding in the fringes of the dark set. So basically you can move right into the next scene seamlessly. And that created the seamless flow of this musical. The production number Nothing Like a Dame was staged very quickly. Because once uh, Logan found the concept of having the men pace back and forth like caged animals, that's basically who was like, this works, it's effective, and it never changed. That was basically what it became. It was very quick and easy to stage. The one thing that did change in the staging was there was originally planned for Mary Barton after concluding I'm in love with a wonderful guy who was going to exuberantly cartwheel off the stage. However, this was eliminated when she did a cartwheel and ultimately ended up falling into the orchestra pit, knocking out Gertrude Rittman, who was the musical orchestrator, one of them. So that very quickly killed that bit of direction entirely. Now she did not go off stage that way. After four weeks of smooth rehearsals, Pinza uh, was having difficulty adjusting to the musical theater world, which is where there were constant alterations to the story and the script and the music. He was more used to the operatic world, which is where basically once the show is locked, it's locked. You don't have to relearn things. 
So for him, he was having struggles. He also struggled with mispronunciations of certain words in English. And so on the drive to New Haven, Connecticut, for the first bit of out-of-town tryouts, Pinza said to his wife that he was considering leaving the production. And she told him, don't leave. Let, like, let the audience attendees decide for themselves what they, what they think of your performance. The tryouts then began in New Haven on March the 7th. The play was an immediate hit. And New Haven registered... Uh, wrote that South Pacific should make history. Nevertheless, they still did a lot bunch of alterations and went to Boston. More alterations were done. Logan brought in another playwright to help cut the dialogue a bit, and that was Emmeline Williams, who we brought in for that. Then the show gets to Broadway. It opens on April the 7th, 1949 at the Majestic Theater, now home to Phantom of the Opera, with the cast including Mary Martin as Nellie, Enzio uh, Pinza as Emile Debeck, William Tabert as uh, Joseph Cable, uh, Betta St. John as Liat, uh, Juanita Hall as Bloody Mary, and Myron McCormick as Luther Billis. The show was an immediate hit. It had advanced sales of $400,000, with an additional $700,000 in sales, which were made very quickly after opening night. Uh, the first audience was packed in. They gave it great praise. They even stopped the show a number of times with the amount of applause they were doing. Raj and Hammerstein, even though they had never done it before, actually rented out the St. Regis Hotel's roof for a after party, and they ordered 200 copies of the New York Times in anticipation of it being a hit. Times critic Brooks Ackeson gave the show a rave review. The show received 10 nominations, Tony nominations, for Best Musical, Best Director, Best Book and Score, Best Lead Actors uh, for for Mary Martin and uh, Pinza, and then you also have, and then also received featured actor nom- and actress nominations for uh, McCormick and and uh, Juanita. Um, ultimately, uh, everybody won their awards. It was a clean sweep that year. It did really well. One notable replacement for Nellie Forbush after Mary Martin left to go off to the West End was none other than the currently late great Cloris Leachman. As of this recording, she literally passed away only a few days ago. On January 16th, 1954, the the, the original production closed, running 1,925 performances, as Autumn said. And it was the second longest running Broadway musical in history, right behind Oklahoma. So there you go. So the show itself proved to be a mammoth uh, success beyond the production itself. It sparked a huge bit of merchandising. That was done for. It was kind of the first big show to do that. It, you could buy souvenir books, South Pacific neckties. For women, you also had lipstick and scarves. You could also buy fake ticket stubs uh, as a status symbol. And then you also had music boxes, dolls, fashion accessories, and even hairbrushes for use after washing a man right out of your hair as they marketed. You then also had the fact that because Mary Martin on stage showered and had a very iconic kind of hairstyle that she had to use to kind of keep her to do the hair <coughs> like it manageable that actually became a very fashionable hairstyle for women and the cast recording which was recorded 10 days after opening night was an immediate success with columbia records it was for 69 weeks the number one billboard album and spent a total of 400 weeks on the charts and was the best-selling record of the 1940s so there you go. Uh, indirectly, so going back to the fact that Michener got 1% of the gross for the show, he was able to actually quit his job as editor of the Macmillan, 
magazine and was actually able to become a full-time writer based on the proceeds he received from the show. But the show was not without speed bumps. No kidding. Um, yes. Yes. So the biggest speed bump came with Cable's big act two number, You Have to Be Carefully Taught. Uh, this was a problem for audiences back when it came out because this was a song that very clearly confronted racism head on. They, Roger Hammerstein did not beat around the bush with this piece of music. Uh, and, and when the New Haven tryouts happened, uh, Michener was approached by a delegation of New Englanders who urged him to recommend the song's removal to Rogers and Hammerstein. When Michener told Hammerstein about this, Hammerstein laughed and replied, that's, <laughs> like, that's what the whole show is about. We're not taking the song out. In Boston, the Boston critics were very apprehensive about it recommending that the song be taken out or at least have Cable sing it less briskly, basically kind of downplay the fact that this is a driving song about racism. Logan replied, basically saying, it's going to be unaltered. Screw you. The show, even after open, after opening, Hammerstein received letters from people about the song saying it should be cut, we should be like removing it, and Hammerstein just ignored them. However, it did start to become a problem when the show went on tour in April 1950. The first uh, road bump was when it got into Wilmington, Delaware, where they were going to play the show in a segregated theater. And Roger and Hammerstein threatened to cancel performances unless seating was uh, integrated. Um, and it was. So, Autumn, what do you think of that? These guys, Rogers and Hammerstein, said, we're not playing, Will we're not playing Wilmington, uh, Wilmington, Delaware in a segregated theater until everybody can come into that theater and sit there together and watch mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. I think that's great. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So the same guys who screwed across Logan are the same guys who do that because they're, they're complicated. They're, human, they're complicated, they're human, complicated beings. human beings. That's true. But I don't mm -hmm. like what they did to Josh. Lee. Fair enough. Oh. Yeah. There you go. Um, in 1953, during the tour, uh, they then got to Georgia, Atlanta. And once again, ran into problems. Both Georgia state legislators, Senator John D. Shepard and Representative David C. Jones, objected to the song, saying that though South Pacific was a fine piece of entertainment, that the song contained an underlying philosophy inspired by Moscow and explained intermarriage produces half-breeds and half-breeds are not conducive to the higher type of society. In the South, we have pure bloodlines, and we intend to keep it that way. They basically stated this, saying they were going to introduce legislation to outlaw such communist-inspired works. Uh, and the Northern press kind of had a total field day with this thing. And Hammerstein even said, basically, on the lines of, like, you're not representing your people very well. And that's basically it. Like, any work, I, I, I basically, you basically gave another middle finger to them going, screw you. So... The show continued to tour and it ran and the tour ran for five years, but it did prevent them from going into a lot of southern areas of the Deep South. So there you go. So the show's on tour. Mary Martin back on Broadway has now left the production in 1951 and she went off to the West End to open that production. It opened in November of 1951 and the show was actually not as well received as it was over on the state side. Never yeah. is. Never is. Yeah. The show, the Daily, the London's Daily Express praised the music, but disliked other elements of that show, writing, we got a 42nd Street Madam Butterfly, 
the weakest of all the Rodgers and Hammerstein musicals. Yeah, the production ran for a total of 802 performances at the Theater Royal Drury Lane. And funny enough, Sean Connery and Mary Martin's son, Larry Hagman, both started their careers in this production as part of the military ensemble. Then, then the show kind of went into a bit of backlog. It didn't get done very much. And then in 2001, uh, Trevor Nunn brought it to the National Theater and directed the production uh, uh, in time to celebrate the centenary of, Roger, uh, of Roger's birth. There was a concert version done in 2005 starring Reba McIntyre as Nellie. You had Brian Stokes Mitchell from Ragtime as Emile, Alec Baldwin as Billis, and Lilius White as Bloody Mary. You then had the first Broadway revival ever done, and that was in April 2008 at Lincoln Center at the Vivian Beaumont Theater. And it was directed by Bartlett Shear. Sure, Shear. Bartlett Shear. Shear, yep. And it starred Kelly O'Hara as Nellie, Paolo Schatz as Emile, Autumn's favorite actor, Matthew Morrison as Lieutenant Cable, and Danny Burstein as Luther Billis, and Latia Alibis as Letty Mary. The production was nominated for 11 Tony Awards, and it won seven, including Best Musical Revival and Best Director. No, uh, uh, it won none for the performance categories. The show that the show uh, closed on August uh, 22nd, 2010, after 37 previews and 996 performances. Uh, the show was recorded in August as well, and was then aired live uh, from Lincoln Center on, uh, uh, in, at the at the end of August as well. There was a film done in 1958, and it topped the box office that year. Joshua Logan directed it. And it featured a star-studded cast, including, here's a fun fact, Thurl Raven, uh, uh, Ravenscroft, later the television voice of Tony the Tiger, provided the bass profundo notes for Nothing Like a Dame. Wow. So when you get to the song of, there ain't nothing like the frame of a dame, that really low line, that is Tony the Tiger singing. So there you go. They did another, they did another, another of other changes, including moving the nothing like a dame scene and Cable's arrival to the start of the movie, and then having the introduction of Nellie and Emil, which is then carried over into other productions. You also had the, you also featured the actual uh, viewing of the mission and Luther's kind of escape from the plane. That was actually part of the film now, uh, and the and the film included the song "My Girl Back Home." which had been cut from the stage musical. The film won the Oscar for Best Sound, and it was the third highest grossing movie in the U.S. of the 1950s. Uh, in, uh, yeah. Whew, okay. Uh, and then in 2001, this is a long production. And then in 2001, there was a made-for-television version done starring Glenn Close as Nellie, Harry McConnick uh, uh, Jr. as Cable, and Radha Shurbagadaya as a meal. And so that version was another hit on law. Uh, uh, it was a, it was a big DVD seller and it also won a few Emmys and it stuck with the film's opening of nothing like a Damon. Then it also made it the song happy talk. The song, my girl back home was filmed, but because of television timing, it was cut and added back in on the DVD and that's production history. There we go. Hey, autumn, we got to take a pause, a pause, a pause for applause. 
Well, we do like our applause on them, but we're actually taking a pause because we want to give a special moment and a shout out to one of our new partners. It's Stu over at the Sounds of Broadway radio station. So let's give a listen to Stu, who's got a great message for us. Take it away. Take it away, Stu. Stu. Where can you hear the best music from Off-Broadway, Broadway, and the London stage? The answer, soundsofbroadway.com, your 24-7 online Broadway music radio station. Listen to selections from well-known, popular, and more obscure musicals from the most diverse playlists anywhere. That's soundsofbroadway.com. Let's go on with the show. Thanks so much, Stu. Autumn, what do you say we get back to the episode? Let's do it. All right. On with the show. Da, 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 da. Autumn, tell us how'd you first come to this musical? Um, I, I will make this short and sweet. I don't know this musical very well. I came to it as a child when um, my local community theater um, did it. That is how I know it. Love it. Lynn, how did you come to it? Did you see the original Broadway production? Oh, for God's sake. Oh, uh, <laughs> you little devil. <laughs> come on. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no. Lynn's seen every other original Broadway production I that we come across. Have missed that one. Um, I, I'm uh, sure I've, I've seen it. I, I'm sure that I have seen it in London and and elsewhere. But the one that I remember more than anything is the one at Lincoln Center with with Kelly O'Hara and Paul O'Shaught. And and because I adore anything that that uh, Bart Shear directs and it's so brilliant with, with his mm-hmm. subtext. That was the one that I, I just loved. And I said, as I said, he, he had a whole section of, of dancers, actors who were black and he kept them separate from the rest of the sailors to give the, to give you that idea of the segregation of, mm-hmm. um, uh, you would see them walking across the stage carrying boxes that said ammunition on it. It was so clear in in a silent way. It was resounding. You would see them, the whites over here and the black guys, all in character, all singing um, exuberantly, like yep. but they were separate. And at times when the black as sailors were walking in front of the whites, there were, you know, you would have a sneer, you'd have a condescending look. You didn't have violence or anything, but that's all you needed was that mm-hmm. subtext and let the audience draw from it what they wanted. And mm-hmm. it was it was unmistakable mm-hmm. what they were doing there. Smart. I loved Smart. it. I thought I thought this was a fantastic production. And you look at this show and it's about racism. It's about this. It's about all sorts of things, but it's about racism. That, like, that was her central topical point they wanted to talk about in this one. And they did a really good job. Yeah, that's right. So I came to this show through something I keep bringing up. And I know Autumn will have a good chuckle with this, but it was through Carl Wilkinson's cassette of stage heroes. That once again comes back into play. That the beautiful evening guaranteed. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that 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 see that tape CD featured two songs. It featured some enchanted evening. Some enchanted evening. 
Someone may be laughing You may hear her laughing Across a crowded room And night after night As strange as it seems The sound of her laughter And this nearly was mine. So, so that's how I came to know the two songs from the score that were kind of my kickoff. Kick and I didn't know much else about it uh, until I watched the, uh, till uh, we got, till I got to seeing the PBS Lincoln Center production that was filmed, that was filmed and aired. That was the way I was able to watch the show and actually get the bigger picture and scope of what this musical was. Yeah. So there we go. Okay, let's get into our top three songs. Autumn, what's your number one? This nearly was mine. Did not make my list. Linda, did it make your list? I adore it. Uh, it's hard to tell because there are so many that are wonderful. It, it did, No, that did not make my okay. list. Fair enough. Autumn, why did it make your list? I just, I love it. It, mm-hmm. it, 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 it it's, it's so close. Mm-hmm. Like the, this nearly was mine. Mm-hmm. It's a lament. It's a mm-hmm. soliloquy. It's. Mm-hmm. Um, grieving. Mm-hmm. It's possession. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yes, mm-hmm. yes. You know when he says at the very beginning, "You're going to be mine." I'm thinking, I'm a little afraid here. Mm-hmm. But it's the times. It's how mm-hmm. it's it's how maybe a European man would look at women. Well, that's just it, and it's mm-hmm. it's very much a European mindset, right? But mm-hmm. the fact that he's more engaged in the romance than she is right Mm -hmm. and his want of her is so palpable Mm -hmm. um yeah i just love the music of this Mm -hmm. like there's just a yearning in it well it's interesting like rogers wrote the song to not end on the tonic it doesn't it ends on an incomplete note you never get that whole completion 
you, you, you exactly you don't get the resolve you're ending on nearly the perfect ending but you don't get it it ends on a uh, no, an unfinishedness i i i just think it's beautiful i think it's a beautiful piece of craftsmanship it is very beautiful but that, uh, and that's it that's all i really need to say about it yeah I, yeah yeah i i love listening to it mm-hmm. it's ang- it's angsty in mm. not an angsty way agreed it's angsty the way angsty should be um yeah it's yes yeah. human not exactly angsty. exactly exactly yeah. lynn what was your number one You've got to be carefully taught. That was my number one, too. My number two. You've got to be taught to be afraid of people whose eyes are oddly made and people whose skin is a different shape. You've got to be carefully taught. You've got to be taught before it's too late, before you are six or seven or eight, to hate all the people your relatives hate. You've got to be carefully taught. You've got to be carefully taught. Okay, fine. Yay. Okay, we all got one. <laughs> all right. I guess I'll go first then, just kind of get the ball rolling. So I like the song because of how just direct it is about racism. Like it just, it doesn't beat around the bush, as I said. It's like, this is what the song's about and it doesn't pull a punch. That's true. It it calls out the, the, the systemic and cultural racism that has permeated, smothered, literally become woven into the tapestry of us as humans. Yes. Uh, it, it is something that is brought down from generation to generation. It is... And it's, and I can see why it was controversial. Like, this is a song that holds the mirror up to the audience and goes, this, look at yourselves. And people, a lot of people don't like when they get called out on this. Like, and I can see why people really kind of got up in arms about it. Because on one hand, you have the North, who are very much, especially in the 1940s, were kind of turning a blind eye to what was happening in the South. And you have the South, who were like, it's part of our culture. Like, this is what we do. It is it is sent down from generation to generation. Like, in the fact that you have Rogers and Hammerstein writing a song that checks everybody, the North and the South, kind of like molasses to rum from 1776, going, you are all part of this problem, not just one of us. Yeah. It is something that is brought down from everybody. Yeah. And I love the way Rogers orchestrates it with the military snare drum. As if it's like the drill that's drilling this concept into your head. And the fact that they didn't write this as a lyrical song that's flowing and holding notes. It's brisk, it's cut, it's chopped. There's not really a held note in this entire piece. And then you have Emil come in and he's saying, I'm trying to escape racism. And yet it's like, you can't. doesn't matter where you go in the world. Racism exists. It's a thing. Yeah, It's part of who we are as humans. It's us, it's humans love to go against the other. It's something, whether you're in France or in the South Pacific or in America, it's there. It's a concept that will forever follow the world. And the fact that you have Emil and Cable who are like, well, we're just going to stay on this island and stick our heads in the sand and ignore the problem. It's a, it's a very interesting way of ending the song because it's not like, because Cable says, well, I, well I'm going to stay on the island of Mary Liot. That's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to go back to my family, but it's like, well, is that really solving your problem? Or is it just more of what Emil does and run away and hide? So it's a very, because it's interesting that Roger Harrison bring up this problem, but they don't offer a solution. They never offer a fix to the problem. 
Emile and Nellie decide to stay on the island questionably together. It's up to interpretation how they go forward. Uh, but basically, like, this is song says there's a problem and it never gives an answer of how do we solve the problem. It's basically like, there's a problem. You as an audience, go ahead and talk about it afterwards. Have a cup of coffee. Figure out your next steps. It's a very smart song. And that's why it is my number one. Yeah. Lynn? Mine's anything you'd like to add? <laughs> no, no, I thought that was perfect. It's a song about racism. And mm-hmm. that's how it starts. You've got to be taught to be a racist. You mm-hmm. don't. You don't all of a sudden decide, oh, today I'm going to be. No, you've got to be taught about it. You've got to be, you know, kids don't see that there is a difference in skin color. Mm -hmm. They don't because they're not taught it Mm -hmm. until 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 they are taught Mm -hmm. that there is. They think there's a difference. So so, you know, you see on the on the Facebook two kids. Who mm-hmm. have the same haircut? They're like four years old, mm-hmm. and they think they're twins. Except one of them is white, and the other is black. And the mm-hmm. beauty of it is that they don't see a difference because there mm-hmm. isn't one. Mm-hmm. That's my friend, and he's got the same haircut as me, and we're twins. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. They have to be taught that there's a difference, and that person's no good because of their religion, their mm-hmm. ethnicity, their skin color, etc. You've got to be taught that shit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Autumn, anything you'd like to add on for before we get before we get to the next one? Because this is your number two. I mean, so much, but mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, no, I I think I think that is a a perfect summation. But it's it also leaves me with the. I, I just have existential questions about it. You know? <laughs> Will we ever not teach otherness? We're mammals. Mm-hmm. And what do mammals thrive on is survival of the fittest. Mm-hmm. So like I, we, it's, it's, ugh. and you do have to be carefully taught and kids don't see it, mm-hmm. but it takes, it, it's like, and you don't even know that it's happening. It It is something you teach. And, how do we how do we teach how how can we share in otherness successfully if all we see is labels and otherness i mm-hmm. it's just there's Big so questions to, yeah there's so much systemic shit to mm-hmm. dismantle mm-hmm. and we're in a position right now where there's uprising and out of guilt and performativity we put band-aids on things because they we that's going to solve it. Mm-hmm. But when we put band-aids on things, when we cover the issue itself up, a it's it's something that only people of a certain class have the ability to do. Mm-hmm. That's one. Number two, it doesn't solve the problem. Mm-hmm. It doesn't address the issue at hand. Mm-hmm. So. I think that the song is good. I think, you know, people were angry. Just people are always going to be angry when they're called out on bad behavior. Mm-hmm. They're always going to be angry. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times the anger, we, many people can't separate their anger. They just become reactive. We need to find another way. There needs to be, we need to find ways to converse, to empathize with one another. The song is bigger than this moment. Yeah. Agreed. Big. Lynn, what is your number two? Some enchanted evening. Who can explain it? Who can explain it? 
can't tell you why. Fools give you reasons wise men never try. Some enchanted evening when you find your true love, when you feel her call you across a crowded room, then fly to her side and make her So Some Enchanted Evening, I think, is a perfect song for Mm -hmm. a meal, as I I think I said earlier, that he sings. This is a man whose first language is French, Mm -hmm. and he he speaks the elegant language of somebody who has learned English as a second language. And Mm -hmm. he also is a man who reads Proust for fun. So he knows the value of English and he knows how to, you know, and, and and it's just so beautifully, elegantly, poetically expresses what's going to happen by accident and by surprise mm-hmm. that you're going to meet the person of your life mm-hmm. across yeah. a crowded room. Mm-hmm. And there she will, he will, mm-hmm. they will, it will be there, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm there will be the person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I simply put, this is one of the most iconic love songs in the Western world. Like, its song has transcended the musical. Even people who don't know the musical know this song. Mm. Like, it's simply one of the most covered songs of the Broadway canon. People do it all the time. I can't tell you how many times I've heard this was the wedding, the first dance song at a wedding. Like, it's gorgeous it is a perfect marriage between hammerstein's very poetic character-driven lyrics and roger's beautiful romantic score that is never overpowering it only swells when it needs to swell and other than that it's very simple and it's beautiful it's a beautiful marriage between the two and it's this whole song is a perfect next step from what happened with Carousel, where Carousel has a very similar opening where you're dropped into the middle of the action and you and you have the two lovers going back and forth with each other. And then and then you end the scene with a love song. And this is just the perfect next step of that. And they do it much better in South Pacific than they do in Carousel. Carousel scene goes on for a long freaking time. And this just works. I mean, the fact in one song you get Cockeyed Optimist, two uh, two soliloquies, and some enchanted evening, all encapsulate and Temois, all encapsulating this perfect first scene of a musical that sets everything up about this couple that you need to know. It's beautiful and it's a great, great song. I Roger has set up the perfect fall for the epic end of Act One mm-hmm. in this one song. Like you hear the song, you go, "How could something possibly go wrong with so much love and such a romantic vibe?" Yep, the fact one, you're going, oh, we really can't take the fall here. I do not like this song. I hate this song. It made your other list? 
Yes. It's the top of my other list. Really? Why? Yeah. I just, this to me is schlock. It's schlocky. It's, a it's supposed to be. It's, a it's supposed to be. That's the whole point of the song. Wow. Mm. No, I don't buy it. I don't, I don't find that there's any. He's schmoozing her. He, yeah. He's schmoozing her. And on top of that, it's that perfect setup. Yeah. You- well, I don't like schmoozing. I don't like the woo. I don't. Up, but um, is it appropriate for the character? Never mind I, you who thinks mm-hmm. differently. Is it yes. appropriate for this character? Yeah. Sure. After two yes. weeks, he's wooing this woman. Yeah. I know. I just want it to be a little I've embedded with, maybe it's an actor thing. Oh, probably. But I've heard it so many times. I was just like, oh. I'm like, oh, God. You need to watch in the context of the show and watch it with like Brian Stoke yes. Mitchell singing it. It's beautiful. Fine. Um, listen to Brian Stokes Mitchell saying anything, but yeah. yeah. Hello, Jacques was not bad either. Yeah, he was good too. He's very good. Yeah. 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 Okay, Autumn, what is your number three? Bally High. That made my other list because there's something haunting about it. It's like it's 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 something that is there, but it's not really real. It's mm-hmm. it's setting up like this. It's almost dystopian um, thing. Lynn, do you know it reminded me of the sirens? Mm-hmm. Yes, it reminded me of the of the Greek sirens. Mm. who had this lilting voice mm. that drew the sailors there to their doom. That's right. So That's it happens to cable. that wonderful, <laughs> wonderful haunting mm. other, otherness mm. of strangeness that goes on there that you can't go there. It's out of bounds, except mm-hmm. if That's you're right. a native and an officer. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. Um, well, there's mystery around it, and I I like that mm-hmm. that it's that there is this this mystery and mm-hmm. secret, and it does remind you're right, Lynn. It is it is very like the siren song. Well, it's a siren song that starts the whole musical, right? Yeah, if you come here, you are there is danger. Yeah, yeah. the rocks yeah. will get you on your journey. And over. don't think that we're just cute. Mm-hmm. That the natives are just cute and silly. And and marks mm-hmm. to be duped. Don't do mm-hmm. that. Don't mm-hmm. treat them like that. We will get you. Don't you do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, the reason why I make my other list is because this is the blatant exoticism of Rogers and Hammerstein and Logan. I mean, the fact they wrote it to sound exotic by using the pentatonic scales and notes to really kind of hammer home that like this is not western sounding this is exotic asian sounding this is this is other this is foreign and you're looking at you're looking at it in in today's lens you can't do that 
That's right. Context. We can't look at it. They wrote it in the 40s. We're in a very different time. We cannot look at it that way. Context. Yeah. We I mean, I get to, in the we, context of the show. It works in the show's context. It is a haunting, lilting melody. I just go, when you're looking at it now, there are problems with that song. Like, I, 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 you have to do some really good dramaturgical work to make this song work now. Because it's either painting Bloody Mary in a really bad light, or, or like you're treating her as just some... Like, or maybe she's a storyteller of her time and place. Mm. I don't know. Like, I, 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 I don't like know. I, I don't know. I would love to hear the song sung in Bloody Mary's native language, and then having Luther sing it in hit in, in English as if he's trying to translate it in his in his reprise. I think that would solve a lot of the the blatant Western exoticism problem. Is if you had Bloody Mary sing it in her own language as a but she's being manipulative. She is. She absolutely is. But once no, again, what's that saying about the like the, the islanders that they are these manipulative sirens who are going to call these white men over and to seduce them so they will marry the women and take them back to to America? Like um, uh, we, we had that problem with Miss Saigon, where it's the same issue. Um. Yes. Yes. Um. Of course, that is true. But Miss Saigon was written in an, an a later time. That's one. And um, we t- we talked about the engineer and we talked mm-hmm. about his, uh, is he problematic as a character? Well, no, because he was trying to survive. Mm-hmm. Like Fagin. Yeah. Fagin is a survivor. Bloody Mary is a survivor. You yeah, have absolutely. these really great characters mm-hmm. that are trying to survive, mm-hmm. whether it be marrying off her child, whether it be, you know, Mm-hmm. having a bunch of boys pickpocket mm-hmm. you know these people were trying to survive we can't judge them mm-hmm. through a contemporary lens that way because we're not living in the same war-torn countries we're not mm-hmm. living their experience we just have to look at it as a piece of historical fiction at this point right fair fair, um, fair. but i i do think there's something like it's a warning. Mm-hmm. Don't don't want too much of us mm-hmm. because it will get you. Mm-hmm. Fair. That's a very fair interpretation. Um, yeah. All right. My number three, though, is yes. Bloody Mary slash Nothing Like a Dane. Because, you know, I got to get my one jaunty tune in there. And I mean, this is once again, it's the continuation of what Rogers and Hammerson have done with Farmer and the Cowman. Junis busting out all over, blow high, blow low. But here they've made the song, this type of these types of songs work because this is a perfect setup song for the community. It sets up under a boisterous overtone. You set up the racism, the misogyny, like 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 who these like who these men are. You're getting all that in this in these two songs that are paired together, and. It's great. I mean, also, it's terrifying as well. I mean, like, you listen to the lyrics of Bloody Mary, and they're describing Bloody Mary and kind of taunting her in a way as they're, uh, as they're exoticizing her. Bloody Mary is the girl I love. Bloody Mary is the girl I love. Now ain't that too damn bad. Her skin is tender as Dimension's glow. Her skin is tender as 
And it's it, 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 there there is a darker undertone to the song where if you play it right, you can really have some interesting staging with that work. And then you get a song like Nothing Like a Dame, which then focuses on a little more of the male misogyny, the male misogynistic point of view of who these men are, where they're ogling the nurses. There is nothing like a dame. And they're describing them. There is, there is nothing like a demon. We want to get our rocks off, and we want. And we're so desperate, and we're so horny that we got this song here. And it's like there's just it's it's an it, once again it's an interesting song where you have this wonderful. There ain't nothing like a dame, and you and, and then you got Luther who is scheming to get over to Bally High to see the naked women, as well as cozying up to nelly by doing her laundry and her pleats which are very difficult <laughs> yes Lynn. i think he's i think he's sweet on her sure <laughs> no i think he's sweet on her truly i think he's sweet on her and she is an uh she's a kind of an ideal mm-hmm. of a nurse you, you know mm-hmm. you can't have a relationship with a nurse if mm-hmm. you are if you're an ordinary sailor but I think he's sweet on her, and and he does her 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 laundry. He does her her sewing and stuff like mm-hmm. that. I thought I got the sense he was sweet on her. I mean, you definitely can play it that he's sweet on her, but I also think you can play it in a very different context. Okay, like in the second act, he does hide Emil's letter and tries to give her the flowers as his own. Yeah, until he has to change of heart later. Um, but like there is an undercurrent to Luther where. He does. I, I, he does have some type of attraction to Nelly, and like, there's this. This song has that great, oh, that undertow of other themes that are happening, uh, that are covered up by this very jaunty. Like watching the production, I, I was sitting here tapping my foot. Like I'll tell you, nothing like a dame is easily on my lawn mowing playlist. Like it's there. It's a great bit of dun 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 dun. Like it's 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 kind of- how many people will go away and view that as a piece of misogyny? Yeah, that's where that's why it is on my other list mm-hmm. because it's fun. When I was a kid, I didn't like no one talked to me about how misogynistic it was. Mm-hmm. So we we touch on how you know we can point out exoticism. But we never talk about misogyny. We never talk about class. Yeah. Why is that not as crucial as a conversation as everything else? Because it's about women. Yeah. That's exactly. Why. Exactly. So. But it's on your lawn mowing list. I like the good beat. But like I listen to the lyrics like my dad wouldn't catch those lyrics. I did. Like that's something where it's like you have to be listening. But like Roger and Hammerstein, they're smart. That's right. They, they hit their deceptively smart point with a very jaunty t- 
tune. And that is and what the thing about most theater going audiences is 90% of them aren't smart to catch it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That is where the danger lies. Yeah. Okay. All right. Let's get into our three songs. We either skip or we'll remove. I had Bally High. Autumn, you've had um, Some Enchanted Evening, Nothing Like a Dame. Lynn, what do you have any on your list? Or is this one of those musicals that kind of. No, I just, I hate Dite Moi. Yeah, it's a song. We talk, I, you know, uh, uh, rate yeah. this. <laughs> about things you like to do you've got to have a dream if you don't have a dream how you gonna have a dream come true and uh, maybe maybe honey bun Just yeah, that song goes on for a long time. Why I don't care. Yeah, and, you know they're not telling me anything. You've already got you know the soft shoe dance, which could mm-hmm. open up back to and show yeah. me what's the the nurses and the sea yeah. and all this. The, the and and okay, that's enough. That's enough mm-hmm. to set me up. And yeah. I've of course got the entr'act, entr'act, etc. Mm-hmm. But after a while, you thought I don't want to see these songs that denigrate a person. Mm-hmm. Or show them off as some kind of illiterate native, mm-hmm. even though they're not. They're not. So don't mm-hmm. bother me with that stuff. Maybe yeah. that's my contemporary nope. lens. Yeah. I just, I, I find it offensive. No, it makes total sense. It makes total sense to me. Uh, the one song I do have on here that may surprise you is I'm going to wash that man right out of my hair. I'm gonna wash that man right out of my hair. I'm gonna wash that man right out of my hair. I'm gonna wash that man right out of my hair and send him on his way. Get the picture? All right. I'm gonna wave that man right out of my arms. I'm gonna wave that man right out of my arms. I'm gonna wave that man right out of my arms and send him on his way. Don't try to patch it up, tear it up, tear it up, wash him out, dry him out. Okay. I don't, I see. So Autumn and I talked about this with prepare ye the way of the Lord in gospel, where it's fine for one, one or two verses, but this goes on for a long ass time. And it's all set up around a gimmick of getting it, of washing your hair. That's Mary Martin's fault. Yeah. Like that, that's what that whole song is set around. And it just goes on and on and on on and it's like holy crap people but as an actor and as a director you have to find a way to navigate your way through a sure. song 
It's repetitive. But that's like prepare you the way of the Lord. You got to find a new way to interpret prepare you the way of the Lord. They did it in the film version, right? <laughs> certainly like, did. This magical man appeared. Yes. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. The most horrific thing I've ever yeah. seen. But um, yes. It it goes on and goes on. It's, 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 it, yeah, it, yeah. It's up for it's up to the director and the actors playing Nelly to really find a way to. Well, it's a soliloquy in a way. Yeah. Well, so how do you make it be. a soliloquy with repetitive lyrics text? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But so, you have to find your way through that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So that was my one. Autumn, do you have any more, or is that it for you? Yeah, it's not my favorite musical. Okay. I much prefer Carousel. Oof. No, thank you um okay well in that case let's get into our final thoughts should it be revived today autumn let you start um i don't know (laughs) i mean yeah sure why not like i i I just think there needs to be conversation around it Mm -hmm. i think we need to look at it at the time that it was written i think we need to I think we just need to handle it with uh, kid gloves. I, I, I'm I, sure um, a lot of people would not want to see this mounted again. Mm-hmm. But it's like, it's a conversation starter, mm-hmm. right? Like, if you were to do this, you could do this in repertory with a contemporary piece from a different perspective. Mm-hmm. And I think that is the way to talk, like, to enter the conversation. Mm-hmm. It's not to tear it down. It's not to throw it in the garbage. It's to have the conversation from all the perspectives. Mm-hmm. Well, I think we should do it, but I think we should create a new piece that marries, um, you know, maybe it's solely through the eyes of Bloody Mary. Mm-hmm. Maybe we get that perspective. Maybe, you know, the voices of Bally High. So we get we get the full outside perspective into the world and the conversation. So, yes, I think we can do it. I just think we need to um, rethink the container that we do it in. That is all. Yeah. Uh, I agree with you. That was exactly my same note, which was um, basically, I do think it should be it should be revived. I and mean, the fact that we only have had one Broadway revival, we've had like two or three carousel revivals at this point, which I'm like, Jesus. Like, yeah. So. Uh, I think it should be revived. Like, just bring it back, re-examine it, look at it from a new point of view. This has a lot to say. Rogers and Humorstown have a lot going on here. There's a lot of subtext. Like, as Lynn said, with the recent Broadway revival that did get into racialization within the military, like, smart ways you can really kind of explore this world and explore these topics and you have something to say. Like, there's so many parallels we can make to modern. I mean, America is still going off into far places um, and basically planting a flag somewhere, building a military base, having the men kind of there to like um, uh, kind of like overtake an area. And that's, and that's something that still happens today, whether it's in the Middle East, in the South Pacific, they still do this type of thing. So it's, this, isn't, this isn't like a foregone World War II era thing. It still happens today. So there's a lot to get into this piece and i think roger was saying something really beautiful here with josh logan that i think you can really continue to explore bring it back again bring it back to broadway it's been almost a decade now bring it back let's talk about it again so yeah lynn 
Final thoughts. I agree. Um, I think it has an awful lot to say about uh, mm-hmm. uh, our world. It's about racism. It's about mm-hmm. all sorts of things. We mm-hmm. have all sorts of interracial marriages mm-hmm. happening now. That's fine. But we still mm-hmm. have racism going on. I think it mm-hmm. speaks volumes about something. I would say the reason they don't have very many revivals is because it's so expensive. They have a mm. they have the requirement of an orchestra of fifty, something like you know. It's huge. Yeah. It is absolutely huge. The music mm-hmm. is lush. If you want to, you know, you want to uh, capture the South Pacific, it's got a huge cast. It's got a huge orchestra. It costs money. That's mm-hmm. why it. That's why you've uh, got a situation. That mm-hmm. costs all of this money and uh, people can't afford it generally. Okay. So we all agree you should come back in some new way. Yeah. Reimagining or like reinterpret or reexamining the text. Excellent. Woohoo. Um, yes. Okay. So I uh, thank you all so much for listening in. Like this has been another great fun episode for us to do. Uh, in the meantime, though, Lynn, where can people find you? Uh, letter.com mm-hmm. or uh, on radio, it's CIUT Friday morning, CIUT Friday morning, 89.5 FM. Got it. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Autumn, where can people find you? Littlewoodsmith.com. Uh, Littlewood Smith, Facebook, Instagram. Beautiful. Follow me. Enjoy. Come, come be part of my Muskokan dream. Love it. Love it. Uh, you can find me at Mackenzie Horner, all social media platforms. You can check out my antics with the Cup of Hemlock at, at the Cup of Hemlock YouTube channel. Uh, by this point, you also will have watched the Cup of Hemlock podcast network as well, where you can actually listen in to audio only versions of our episodes. We also want to thank Mr. Brody Weld for his wonderful contributions with this theme music. Listen to all his music, Father Flozis, on Apple Music, Bandcamp, all listening platforms. Go listen there. He always has new stuff coming out. And until next time, everybody, stay healthy, stay safe, and hopefully one day you too can get on a plane and journey to the South Pacific and to the island of Valley High. They call you. Come away. Come away. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Bye. Once you have found him, never let him go. Once you have found him, never let him go.